Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. I'm going to drop you right into a conversation today with Dan Lindbergh, who is an emergency medicine physician and also a child abuse specialist. And the thing that I wanted to chat about today is something that I think terrifies a lot of us. How do you approach the potential abuse patient in the emergency department? What is our role? What do we need to document? What should we not document? And the biggest thing, how do I not screw up a court case. So Dan is going to tear through all of that today and hopefully get all of you a little bit more comfortable with these cases that are admittedly sad, but they are going to be a part of our job for our entire career. So I'm going to drop you right in. Yeah. So I'm Dan Lindbergh. I'm a bit of a unicorn because I trained in general emergency medicine. And then I went on to do a fellowship in child abuse pediatrics. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado. I do most of my clinical time at a university hospital, and then I take call with the child protection team at Children's Hospital Colorado. And that, that's how I know Dan, because he usually corrects mistakes that I've made. So <laughs> um, so Dan, what we wanted to talk about today is child abuse and neglect, I feel like is one of those topics that gets a lot of emergency docs very worried because we're terrified that we're going to miss something and also terrified that we are going to in some way screw up in our workup or our documentation, and that's going to affect that child's safety or some sort of court case. So I kind of wanted to tackle this problem from what are the things that make us the most scared, and then can you make make me feel less afraid about approaching these patients. I think that uh, one of the most exciting things is in the last decade, the specialty of child abuse pediatrics has really come from not much to a full-fledged specialty with a lot more research that's coming out. And a lot of that research really fits with a workflow that's very much emergency medicine. It's less and less based on, oh, I know this family for 30 years, and more and more based on, I'm going to do routine things the same way every time, which is very much what emergency medicine does. And I think we're finding more and more that that's probably the right way to do things, that we're going to miss less abuse, we're going to be less biased. So I think there is a lot of research in the last 10 years that should fit really well with what a lot of emergency physicians do and how they like to practice. But I do think it's one of those things that because it's involved in court, people do get uptight about that because it's not a field they usually work in. And you can talk to folks who pretend like, oh, the rules are different and reality is very different in the courtroom. My experience is that while there are some things you should know, the courtroom usually tries to get things right as best they can. And if you practice in a way where you're trying to do the best thing for the patient and work within your normal standard of practice, that generally speaking, that's going to go over pretty well in court and the right thing's going to happen for the child. And that's one of those things you've told me before, and I, I really appreciate the way that you approach it. The bottom line of all of this is going to be do your best, do the best thing for that child, and, and follow your normal standards of practice, and, and you should be okay. So do you have any good recommendations for sometimes just getting started with that family is can be really hard. You, you find an injury or you see something that makes you worried, and you need to do some additional workup. So do you have any thoughts on, on how you tell the family that or what your approach should be to tell them that you're going to need to start doing some additional workup? But do so non-confrontationally. Yeah, I think that's really maybe the most important thing because if you believe what I just said about a workup for abuse should be more routine and based on the injuries that you're finding and not necessarily psychosocial concerns or your impression of how a family is interacting, you're going to accept that we're going to work up more kids for abuse than just the number of kids who are abused. In the same way we do a bunch of LPs in kids who don't have meningitis, I'm going to be pushing you to do skeletal surveys in a lot of kids that aren't abused. And that's fine as long as the process of working kids up for abuse isn't dangerous dangerous or harmful. You know, you're a doctor, someone's coming to you for help, all of a sudden you're talking about abuse, there's a harm 
to the patient if they feel judged or persecuted or if they feel like this is being done unfairly. And that's also not a recipe for a sustainable work-life balance. If you're always feeling like you're judging people or accusing people of something, and I think if it's hard to raise those issues with families, people are just going to not do the workup when they can get away with it. When it's a gray case, if they feel like it's going to be a fight or if they feel like they're insulting someone, they're going to find every reason not to do the workup. And that's when I think people are like, well, you know, the family's so nice. Do we really have to do the workup? And I think if, if we can just overcome the discomfort with raising the issue, it, it'll make it easier. And there's a few ways to do that. This may be a bit of a tangent, but I want to talk a little bit about Faulkner Hospital. So when I was working at Brigham and Women's, Brigham and Women's, like a lot of hospitals in Boston, is an ivory tower in a lot of ways. It's very academic, it's very famous, and it's got a small footprint. And they can't add more patient beds without building up. And so they get full. And when the emergency department is overcrowded, one method we had for making sure patients got the best care is that people with straightforward illnesses like community-acquired pneumonia would get transferred to Faulkner Hospital. Now, Faulkner Hospital is a great hospital. It's got the same nurses, the same doctors, the same residents. It's right across from the Arboretum. It's got wonderful food in the cafeteria. It's easy to park. It's easy to get to. And when you would say to people in the emergency department, you've got community-acquired pneumonia, let me tell you about this great place, Faulkner Hospital, they would listen politely and say, I came to the ivory tower. I'm staying in the <laughs> ivory tower. I finally figure things out when my boss at the time said, you know, when you diagnose someone with a hip fracture, you don't say, would you like to go to the orthopedics floor or would you like to go to the endocrinology floor? You say, this is what's going to happen. And so instead of trying to convince people, oh, this is such a great hospital, you just say, you've got community-acquired pneumonia, and when we see this, this is what we do. We're sending you to Faulkner Hospital. And if they go, oh, my goodness, my mother was buried under Faulkner Hospital. I can't go there. Then you can have a discussion. But you don't begin with, is this a good idea or not? This is just, this is what we're going to do. So you state it kind of matter-of-factly without, instead of presenting it as a, let me convince you that this is the right thing to do first. Right. This is just, this is what we're going to do next. And people can still ask questions. You're not taking away their rights or their autonomy, but you're not trying to ask them what's the right thing to do medically. You're just going to be very matter-of-fact. These are our next steps. The important thing is that that has to be true. That ha It has to be the, the next steps every single time. You can't say, oh, we do this every single time if you only do it in poor folks or folks that don't look like you or folks who have some quote-unquote abnormal interaction to finding out their child has an injury. These things just aren't very objective and they're, they're hard to reproduce. So it has to be a standard practice. Say it as a matter of fact. And then the other thing is it's not personal. Uh, I think that a lot of times people say, well, if I'm raising the issue of abuse, I'm saying, I think that you are the sort of person who would abuse your child, which is, of course, that's ridiculous, right? We don't, we're not equipped to make right. that kind of right. judgment. It's uncomfortable to make that kind of judgment. So really, it, it's very much that injury-based approach. When we see this injury, then we do this evaluation in order to make sure that there's not additional trauma or medical illness that makes your child uh, more susceptible to injury. It's not about, I think you abused your child. If I mention abuse specifically, I'll say, I think we all want to make sure that no one's been hurting your child and that it's not directed at anyone who's sitting in front of me. It's not my job to figure out who did something is really just screening for a disease. This all kind of boils down to, for me, a pretty stereotyped way of saying this. When abuse is brought up, it's always because we're finding something we don't expect. We're finding an injury in a child with no history of trauma, or we're finding a major injury in a child with a history 
of minor trauma. So when we see kids who fall off the bed, we don't expect to find subdural hematomas. And we found a subdural hematoma in your child after they fell off the bed. So this is more than we expect. And whenever we see more injury than we expect, we have to do other tests to make sure that there's not other trauma somewhere else or some medical illness that makes them more likely to have an injury after a minor trauma. And this is what we're going to do next. And that can even extend to, you know, when we see more than we expect, we have to report this to Child Protective Services to make sure that no one's hurting your child or make sure your child is safe. Um, and that's a very matter-of-fact kind of non-confrontational way of saying it. I really like that verbiage. You're not assigning any sort of blame. You're not making judgments on them. It's a matter of we, we found this injury, and I like the term that was more than we expected. And, and because of that, this is our protocol. And then you can kind of put it that way instead of it being we've judged you to be higher risk. And so we need to do something else. Yeah, it works about 60% of the time. <laughs> the other 40%, <laughs> someone goes, but wait a second, I'm the only person who's been caring for the child. And you still say, look, I, that doesn't, that's not impacting my calculus. This is just more than we expect. It's not about me looking at any person. And they still go, well, yeah, I can do the math. <laughs> so following up from that and, and knowing that you're going to do this protocol, like, what is it your job as the emergency provider to, to figure out that night? You know, what do you need to do to make sure that the child is, is safe, but to also cover your responsibility? Yeah, that's a really, really important question. And I'm going to answer it a little backwards because I'm going to tell you what it's not your job to do. Because I think sometimes people get so uptight and say, you know, if I call CPS and it's not abuse, what have I done, right? Am I sending uh, someone with jackboots to kick in their door and take their kids away? Am I signing signing myself up for a court date? What if I'm not 100% right? Versus what if what if it's such a, a small chance and then I don't call? This seems like more than I usually do in the emergency department, right? I've only got a couple hours. And, you know, when you put it like that, it's kind of like a light bulb over the head. Of course, you're not going to figure this out in the couple of hours that your kid's in the emergency department. In the same way, you're not going to get somebody's appendix out from the emergency department. It's your job to to diagnose the appendicitis. You know, when you look at what happens when there's a concern for certainly physical abuse or sexual abuse in a child, what happens before custody changes, before someone gets charged with a crime, before CPS substantiates abuse? I mean, this is a process that takes days and weeks. People are going to the house, they're interviewing other people, they're looking at past medical histories, they're doing a ton of testing, they're looking at past criminal histories. Before any of these things happen, it's, it's days or weeks. It's almost never possible to come to a 100% conclusion about abuse in the first few hours of a case. And even when it is possible, it's almost never necessary. What really has to happen is that child has to be safe. We have to do some testing to find other injuries and make sure that those injuries are treated. We have to think about the other kids being safe. And what needs to happen for all those things to happen from the emergency physician is they have to think about abuse. And really, that's where the high stress is, because if we as emergency physicians don't consider abuse in a child who's abused, no one else can help us with that. Once we've thought about abuse, there are lots of people who can do all those other tests, who can do the background checks, who can look in the home, and who can really weigh all the evidence and come up with a conclusion. Ultimately, the hardest choices about whether or not someone keeps their kids or whether or not someone goes to jail are really not 
things we learn how to do in medical school. Those are political or judicial things. And there's somebody else who weighs that. To answer your question, the real thing you have to do as an emergency physician is consider abuse. And with a little testing or a physical exam, raise the alarm if you think there's a reasonable concern. And you can let everybody else do all the other things about, did it actually happen? Who did it? When did it happen? What's the appropriate remedy for this sort of situation? But that's only true if there's a way to raise the concern that doesn't look like I'm sending jackbooted thugs to your door to knock the door down or I'm pointing at you and saying that you abused your child. And so right then we're back to the, when we see this, we've got a reasonable concern. We have to do these other tests. We have to get these other people involved. We have to think about this. And I think people are receptive to that. People understand, oh my gosh, this is the third time in a month where my kid's in here with bruises. I knew this is coming. Someone's going to have to think about it. And as long as you just say, you know, I'm I'm thinking about these things, I'm, I'm raising the alarm, then I think patients get it. A couple of questions that I feel like we get asked, and I'm always uncomfortable, and, and I think I've got to the point where I just don't provide a specific answer for some of these, is either the parent or a policeman will say, well, who did this? And when did it happen? And I feel like that can be a little bit of a struggle. So do we even have any evidence to be able to answer those things? Is that our responsibility? Is that somebody else's responsibility? Yeah. So there's a couple issues here. One is what are we trained in medicine to do? And then the second is who should be answering these questions? And when information has to be disseminated in a lot of different organizations, there's a principle that it should come from one source, right? In in crisis management, there's going to be one person who's talking to the press. And I think those principles principles apply in this case a lot of the time. And it's crystallized in court when you've got a defense attorney who's really trying to sometimes blow smoke or throw shade and try and make it look like there's confusion when things are pretty straightforward. And when you say, you know, I think there's like half a dozen rib fractures. And I say, I think there's probably about six rib fractures. They'll say, aha, <laughs> there's a difference. Uh, these guys can't agree on what they're saying. And, and that's the most crystallized example. I think from clinical care, we've all experienced a situation where one of our trainees or one of our consultants says the exact same thing, just a little differently. And families that are stressed out or looking to hear something that's not right can get really upset and feel like they're getting different messages. I think that's very understandable. And of course, everyone's going to be stressed out in a situation where a child might be abused. So when a child abuse pediatrician's involved or when you're consulting the child abuse team, if it's me, I'm very comfortable having one source of communication about things like how likely is this to be abuse? What other mechanisms could be involved? When did this happen? And I'm comfortable with that person being me. I do not say that because I want to get other people out of the decision-making process at all. I'm not trying to usurp somebody's autonomy in that sort of situation. But if you feel like there's a disagreement between me and you and and what you think is is reasonable, I would hope that you would start with me and we'd have a reasonable conversation. I think 99% of the time, doctors are, are reasonable people and can talk about it and go, okay, I think we're saying the same thing. Or, oh, I didn't understand doctor, orthopedic surgeon, the mechanism of this fracture, thank you for explaining it to me, and now I agree with you. But in those rare cases where it's like, no, I really don't think this happened from a fall out of bed, and you really do, well, that's fine. We can go forward with that. But I think if you're saying, look, I just don't feel comfortable expressing the likelihood of abuse or the timing of abuse or the likelihood of some mimic, I would encourage you in the same way if someone came up to you and said, well, the CT just came back 
with appendicitis, when do I need surgery? You'd probably say, you know what? Those sorts of decisions are made by our surgery team. You, you probably have a guess. You probably right. are right, right 99% of the time. But we usually let the surgical team make that kind of thing. If you're being approached by cops or family members and saying, look, you know, is this... This is definitely abuse, and I'm involved in the case, I w and you feel uncomfortable, I I'm going to give you 100% permission to say, let me page Dr. Lindbergh right now and have him talk to you about it, or he's the person we, we go through. Yeah, and I, I like that approach. The child abuse physicians are their own subspecialty, and you, you would consult them the same way you would on, on other cases, and in the same way that I feel like we try not to promise something from another subspecialty before they've gotten to come speak to them. That's how I view some of these interactions I, I don't want to say something that's going to put you into a, an additional uncomfortable situation either. Right. It really, I, I do want to emphasize how it's not that I think we have some mystical knowledge that you don't have uh, and only we are allowed to say this. I really, it's really more about being consistent, using the same language, uh, not giving people the opportunity to feel like they're getting different messages unless they really are. And if they are, then fine, we can, we can deal with that. But it's just the potential for confusion is so high that I, I just think more communication is better. Can we do a rundown of whether there is data for timing or dating injuries that we get asked about a lot? Yeah. I think with the development of child abuse pediatrics as its own specialty, there's been a lot more data and we're getting a lot of things out there. Like, you know, when I started, there was still this myth out there that spiral fractures equals abuse or any retinal hemorrhages automatically equals abuse. And I think people are getting a little more sophisticated about those things and we're hearing that less and less. But the thing that I still think freaks people out and there's a lot of misinformation out there is timing. The big ones that we see are uh, bruises of different ages. And I think more and more people are, are realizing that the initial table that we all had in medical school, <laughs> red and purple bruises are one to two days old, yellow bruises are three to five days old. That was based on a single autopsy study of like a few dozen adults, elderly adults. There was no diversity. It's just, it was lousy data. And since then, there have been a lot of studies that do it the way you would expect to do it, where you'd get kids where you know when they had bruises and just ask independent blinded doctors to say, what color is this bruise and how old is this injury? And that study has been done. And it turns out doctors like us can't even agree what color <laughs> the bruises are. Uh, and we're not very accurate at determining how old the injuries are. So you can't tell the age of bruises. And that's one way to get in trouble is if you make your decisions based on that. The second thing that I think less people know about is uh, estimating the age of subdural hematomas. And radiologists all the time will tell me, oh, it's bright blood, therefore it must be new, or it's dark, therefore it must be chronic. And the easiest way to to demonstrate that there's no evidence behind that is just go, oh, when you say acute, how, how old is acute? And no one has the answer to that question. <laughs> there is no answer, right? So the way you would do that study is you'd get a bunch of kids in car crashes who have subdurals and look at their CTs over time and say, when did it stop being bright? When did it start being dark? And that study's been done a few times, once at Brown in Providence and once in uh, France, in Paris. And then I think it's been done a couple times retrospectively in Hershey, Pennsylvania and in the Netherlands. Time and time again, we see that you can get bright subdurals late in the process. You can have dark subdurals early in the process and all over the place. It's probably generally true that dark subdurals are older, but generally true is really not it's good enough, not enough when we're trying to decide if a kid's abused. The other topic that stresses me out and stresses our trainees out when we're trying to talk to them about is documentation. I 
internally feel, even though I know this not to be true, that the entire court case rests on me. And if I don't use the exact perfect wording that I am either going to somehow have to go to court when I didn't have to, or I'm going to ruin a court case, or I'm going to get somebody falsely charged, like all of these worries, because we aren't in that space very often. So am I right? Am I wrong? Can you give us an idea of things that we should do, shouldn't do, and what should our level of worry be? Yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised if the reason you feel that way is because someone told you that at some point, that you had a case and you went through, you did a template and you said, this is a 14-year-old girl and no acute distress. And somebody came back from the court case and said, you know, I was on the stand for three hours explaining how someone who was just assaulted might be in no acute distress. And you're, you so-and-so just ruined this case by using this template. And you walk away going, like, how am I supposed to know? Right. How am I supposed <laughs> how to How am I ever supposed to document this? Right. And there are a few things I want to touch on. But the first thing I want to say is, like, let's pump the brakes a little bit, okay? That person is going to be on the stand for three hours explaining something if there is a defense attorney worth their salt. And there's always, I mean, medical records are scores of pages. There is going to be something that someone whose only hope of doing their job well is by making things sound confusing when they're not confusing. They're going to latch onto something and pretend like it shows that we're incompetent or we disagree or we're not saying it's abuse. That's just going to happen. And if you say, well, when I document no acute distress, I'm documenting for other emergency physicians that this person was not going to die. They weren't in respiratory distress. They weren't in unstable vital signs. They didn't look like they were falling off the bed in pain and agony. That's what I mean by that. And that's an important thing for us to document in kids with asthma or heart conditions. And that's what that means to us. You can explain that to someone. And they might make you say it five times, but you know why you said that. And so don't get upset about that. With that said, there are a few pitfalls that people run into, and there's there's reasons for that. The first thing is stay within your evidence base. So don't document something that you really can't back up. And, and the things that are most common with that are the timing issues that we talked about. I would say don't document an acute subdural hematoma or a chronic or, God forbid, an acute on chronic. Uh, unless there's some new evidence that I haven't heard of, unless you can really back that up, I wouldn't call it that. I would say mixed density or I would say hyperdense subdural hematoma if you if you need to or just say subdural hematoma. I wouldn't say bruises of different ages. If you want to, you can say bruises of different colors, but I'm not sure that's really necessary. And then the other one I see from time to time is fingertip bruises. Like unless you see the fingerprints, like a small oval of a bruise can come from a lot of different things. So if you're calling it fingertip, you got to know why you're saying it's it's fingertip. The other things that I think people fall into that they probably don't mean to say is shaken baby syndrome. And if you've been practicing in this field for five years, you've probably heard 10 different people call it 20 different things, you know. <laughs> whiplash, shaken infant, shaken baby syndrome, abusive head trauma, non-accidental trauma. The reason we use abusive head trauma is because there are times when people call it shaken baby syndrome and you get to court and they go, well, how do you know it was a shake and it wasn't someone throwing this baby against the wall? And you and I are like, well, I don't care, right? It doesn't matter. That's a problem (laughs) if you're throwing the baby against the wall. It's kind of like, You can imagine going to court and going, well, this guy clearly murdered his wife, but you can't tell me if he used a baseball bat or a golf club so he gets to walk free. It drives you nuts. But that's why we don't say shaken baby syndrome anymore. We say abusive head trauma. I really want to make it clear that, yeah, shaking can hurt babies. Uh, It's not a healthy thing to do. It can definitely cause problems. But you're going to save yourself a little confusion by using the term abusive head trauma. 
It's not something we can't get beyond if you do that. The last thing I would say is I wouldn't use the term pathognomonic. I'll give you an example. A classic metaphyseal fracture or the bucket handle fractures, like I want to call every single time when you see those. Those are almost always abuse. But we've got a few case reports of kids who have club foot surgery. We've got some breach deliveries. We've got one case report of a kid who's arm got tugged to get an IV, who had things that look like classic metaphyseal fractures. And in court, pathognomonic means, to a defense attorney, it means I put my brain on the shelf. I found this thing, so I stopped thinking because this thing can only be from child abuse. Gotcha. And so I, I found this. So then, so that's why I don't use pathognomonic. What, what words do you use instead? When I'm in my role as an emergency physician, I say this raises a concern for abuse. This raises a reasonable concern for abuse, and it triggers my mandate to report or, you know, these injuries have been associated with abuse, and so I consulted the child protection team. And, you know, I think that's a reasonable approach. I think there are some people who are like, yeah, I know much more than that, though. This is, like, super concerning for abuse, and I, you know, really, really want this to get taken care of. Right. There's sometimes I wish I could just put a lot of reallys in there to, right. <laughs> to show how concerned I am. If you're making the case, if you're calling me up and saying, you know, I'm really concerned about this kid, uh, he's got all these injuries, and I'm saying, okay, let's let's go for it, then you don't need to necessarily put that in your note. You sure. can just say, I'm concerned for abuse. And I think one of the biggest challenges I face in court is the, well, isn't it true that once Jason calls you, you just assume it's abuse and your job's to find abuse. And if you find OI, you get paid less or something like that. And so I always make it clear what's obvious to all doctors that we're, this is a differential diagnosis. Right. We're thinking of other things. And I think it's reasonable for you to think of those other things too. So I have had a larger number than I would have ever predicted of patients who are brought into me whose mom says, I think their vagina looks larger than it should be, or it looks larger than it did last week and they spent the week with father. And what do I document in those situations? Are, are there things that I can say or can't say? And they frequently follow that up with, well, how does their hymen look? The hymen is, uh, there's a lot of issue about a little tissue when it comes to the hymen. And <laughs> how long have you had that chambered? <laughs> since I was... Uh, <laughs> Since I was a fellow, I got that from my uh, fellowship director. The reason why people don't like to say hymen intact is because there has been, and I, unfortunately there still persists, even among some pretty successful doctors, the belief that the hymen is a little bit like the head of a drum. It's a membrane like the tympanic membrane that's intact until you have sex, and then it's broken. This is a problem in all of our culture, and it's just a widespread belief. And of course, it's not true, right? And anyone who's heard of the disease and imperforate hymen goes, oh, wait, of course that's not true. Like an imperforate hymen is a very rare pathological entity that can be fixed and causes symptoms. But it's very rare. So a normal hymen looks like a C or a donut, and there's usually an opening. And so that's why when people that I know document hymen intact, they just mean it's not bruised, it's not torn. Right. They don't mean it's a full membrane, but that's how it's misinterpreted, uh, sometimes intentionally misinterpreted to make it seem like you don't know what you're talking about. The easy way to document the hymen is no bruises, no laceration. If you want to get fancy, you can say semilunar or circumvallate or annular or whatever. Sure. But just, just say no evidence of trauma and then go on to say a normal exam does not exclude or confirm 
sexual abuse. To talk specifically about the hymen size issue, there were tons of paper about hymen size. And I guess the first question I would ask is, how are you going to measure the size <laughs> of the hymen, right? A prepubertal hymen, you can't touch it. If you get near it, that's the end of the exam forever because it's really tender. A postpubertal hymen is kind of like a stretched out turtleneck. There is no way to measure the size of this hymen. And so anyone who says, well, I can tell by the size of the hymen, just ask them, what experiment could you possibly do that gives you the size of a hymenal opening, normalizes it for age, and then determines whether or not a child has been abused? And I'll just say that the, the best evidence we do have where they try and look at hymenal size has not been related to abuse when you take samples where there's really a high level right. of concern and, right. and samples where there's not. I got a question about this just last night on call. It's, it's still out there. There have been a lot of surprises to me as I entered fellowship and then my young attending career, and, and that one being a semi-frequent concern from parents always surprises me. Yeah, and it's, I mean, people don't look at genitals very often. I think doctors are guilty of this too. Right. They'll say it's open or it's red, but they just mean it looks different, and I don't know what I'm yeah, looking at. And that's fine, right? Like, most people don't look at pediatric genitalia. Yeah, they, uh, most this people... This is good news. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's, I think, a victory. On this documentation thing, what about when we get the reverse situation where you have a patient brought in and somebody is concerned for abuse, the school or the family, and the patient themselves has not reported anything and they have a normal exam. And this often happens in the situation of a custody dispute. They were at dad's house over the weekend, their butt was red when I got them home, and I think this is abuse. And and so that's a tough situation, right? Because unfortunately, I've been in, involved in situations where I'm, it's pretty clear it's a, a rough divorce and someone's using a claim of abuse in that situation. It's also pretty clear to me that if I was involved with someone and I thought they were perping my kid, you bet I'd get a divorce and you bet it would be ugly and right. you bet I would do everything I could to do that. And it, we just don't have the tools to make that distinction as emergency physicians. But, you know, our reasonable concern standard is is something that reasonable people can define. And so what I'll say to the parents are, you know, I don't see anything here that triggers my mandate. And that's what I'll write in the chart. While no evaluation can completely exclude the possibility of abuse, we haven't found anything today that meets the standard of a reasonable concern for abuse, and that's why I didn't report. And then I always tell the parents that they have the opportunity to report themselves if they're concerned and they disagree with me. They can, they don't, you don't need an MD to report. Right. Uh, I guess if we're talking about documentation, one of the great never-do-this vices, don't say, I have a reasonable concern for abuse, but for reasons A, B, and C, I'm not reporting. If it's a red butt and you're not reasonably concerned, you're not reporting, say you're not reasonably concerned, you're not reporting. But if you say, I have a reasonable concern, I'm going to make sure they follow up with their pediatrician in a week, and hopefully they can report for me, you are just documenting that you are not following your mandatory reporting Yeah, that sounds like a really good way for you to have to personally show up in court <laughs> about yourself. I don't know that there's a lot of cases where people have been sued for not mandatorily reporting. I mean, uh, Joe Paterno is a great counterexample sure. of where people get in trouble. But certainly you can run into all sorts of problems with you're not doing your job, you're not following the mandate, and, you know, that's the reason for the mandate. And so you have to couple it with, hey, look, this is a reasonable concern. I'm not making a diagnosis. I'm asking somebody else to help me out with this if you're uncomfortable. But if you say you're concerned and then you don't report, 
That's a big problem. Let's just review some of what Dan said to try to wrap everything up. The first thing, and I think the most important thing to take out of this entire discussion is the decision of if a child was abused and who did it and then what happens after that is not your responsibility. You can't take that on any more than you would take on the responsibility of removing a patient's appendix if you're not the surgeon. Your job is to ensure that the appropriate workup has been done and to facilitate other people deciding where is this child the safest. Second, you cannot diagnose abuse unless you think about it. And we need to get out of the mindset of these social risk factors being a reason to or not to do a workup. You can no more screen out a patient because they've got a nice family than you can say that they are more likely to be abused because they have other risk factors. Third, pay attention to his documentation principles. Don't get yourself into trouble by saying something that you within your training and scope of practice cannot say. We more often get into trouble by being too detailed or trying to say too much than by leaving it more general. And he gives some examples in that of head imaging, of what to say on a physical exam, and then what not to say. Fourth, you are not going to either make or break a case based on your documentation. If you're going to wind up in court, the defense attorney, if they are any good, is going to find something that is inconsistent in your documentation. So you are not going to ever write the perfect note about these cases that will somehow avoid you having to go to court or make the case perfectly clear. Do your best. Be as clear as you can without overstating. Lastly, we have an entire subspecialty that is dedicated towards this subset of patients. Use them. If you are not sure what the appropriate workup is, how concerned you should be about a particular physical finding, or what the next steps are, call them. And if you work in a shop that does not have a 24-7 child abuse pediatrician on call, the local Child Protective Services Agency can also help you out with this. They can determine whether the patient is safe to go home that night and then ensure that they get a home visit and follow up. So by calling them, you are not saying, I definitively 100% know that this child was abused. But if you have any concern in your brain, this is our mandate. That child's safety is on you. And if you cannot say that you believe that they are safe going home, you need to call and get some separate help. I wanna thank Dan so much for being here. I also want to thank the Digital Scholarship Accelerator for providing recording space, editing help, and mentorship through this entire project. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation with me going, either by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, through email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or by leaving a five-star iTunes review so that other people can find the podcast. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 